I'm Ben Fern. And I'm Paul Sheridan. Thank you for listening to the Words of Grace podcast. Yeah, we've decided that we would do some special topics uh, for extra podcasts. And those will probably go out on a Thursday. Um, and we've just recorded a, an extremely profound podcast on Black History Month. There were lots of um, emotional moments in it, a very powerful testimony from the Reverend Anita Cook, yeah. who's very much an advocate for racial justice. And yeah. her story is just amazing to hear. It's really fantastic. So uh, we will advertise it. It's out on Thursday rather than a Tuesday when our normal podcast will go out. I'd recommend that you listen to it. Comments are, are welcome, but uh, that's where you'll find it on the normal Spotify, other streams, and also on the uh, Diocese website. Yep, it's available now, so please do give that a listen and help us to reflect more on racial justice and uh, hopefully encourage us all to do more to uh, raise awareness of it. Yep, and uh, see you soon on our normal podcast. See you soon. Welcome to the Words of Grace podcast, where we discuss faith journeys, fellowship and stories from across the Diocese of Sheffield. Each week we will feature guests from a broad range of backgrounds and traditions within the Church of England. Our mission is to delve deeper into matters of faith and ask each guest what has drawn them to Christianity. I'm Ben Fern and I'm here with my colleague and co-host Paul Sheridan. How are you Ben? I'm well thanks. We're just as you're hearing this episode now, we're getting into Way Faith Fortnight, so it's a very exciting time. Lots of badges being worn, hopefully. Definitely, Hannah Sandoval's helped to spearhead that, spearhead that, along with our friends at Arise Sheffield, of course. Hannah, very much a friend of the podcast, get that in earlier. Yeah, we are looking to forward with immense um, anticipation to Christmas. Hannah on the harp is going to be a high point, isn't it, as we come towards Christmas? Sounds like an Alan Partridge proposal, that Hannah on the harp idea well, for a show. Well, you, you do know, Ben, that, that the Richard Madeley Hannah, Alan Partridge moment is not far from me at any point. No, that's true. We can go off there if we want to. So, yeah, Hannah on the harp is definitely going to be an Alan Partridge sort of moment. I think we might have to go full Partridge and Maidley for Christmas specials. I'm not sure that um, a balancing act is going to go down well on a podcast, but maybe you guys have thought that through already. A balance? Oh, yeah, I see what you mean, yeah. yeah. Hannah on the harp. Yeah. I mean, well, (laughs) people aren't going to be able to see that, but... I suppose if you if the narrative around it, the commentary on it's good. Black and white snooker work. used to be snooker when my, I was growing up my, in black my, and white. My grandparents loved that. They, they Thanks, John. Me. That's put me in my place. <laughs> <laughs> okay, boomer. My Hello, life. boomer. Yeah. yeah, they yeah they had a black and white TV, and yep, well, so did we. Um, they said they could tell which ball it was because how, of how grey it was. Yeah, shades shades, shades of grey. Yeah. Which is a, another podcast that none of us are involved with. Yeah. <laughs> Sort of worth, worth noting as well that um, as this episode goes out, <laughs> it'll be post uh, Church House Bake Off, which our colleague Jason Smedley's organised for uh, for charity. I've You've, taken the plunge. Mm, brownies. Brownies. I've called them Ben's Bang Average Brownies, just for alliteration. Nice. So we, I've made them already, but as we're recording this now, it's in two days. But as this episode goes out, it will have happened. So I don't know whether we need to shoehorn in the post-edit a review of how it's gone if I've poisoned anyone. Yeah, we might have to mention it in the future, but, uh, you know, I came back in after four or five days of, of, you know, I felt better after four or five days, actually, after I sampled a few. First couple of days afterwards was a little bit dodgy, but after that, they went really, really well. I'll take that. And if you don't make it with the actual brownies, is there a prize for the best name? 
Because I don't think you're going to be in for that either, are you really? No. He bends on. I bends, thought you were building me up then, John. Yeah, no, that was, was he built you up to knock you down. <laughs> you will have heard in the background, interspersing our, our guest for today, um, our friend and colleague, John Marsh. Um, John is originally from Sheffield and also went to Sheffield University. And after a few jobs in software and banking, he did a PGCE and started to teach in a state primary where he did 10 years from year three to year six. He also taught after that at a local boys' independent school for 16 years and was lay chaplain there. As he started to branch out, he started to work one day a week for a local church, which we'll sure we'll get onto in a minute, and then trained for ordination in, uh, as an SSM between 2011 to 2014 with a number of local celebrities, which we may mention again in a bit. Yeah. John started his role as Mission Development Advisor in September 2019, funded as many people are at Church House from the SDF bid. Um, his hobbies involve watching one of the Sheffield teams, which we'll get onto in a minute, uh, playing RPGs. Now, I thought RPG was a surface-to-air missile, but I don't know what RPG is. Rocket-propelled grenades. It, it is. Yeah, but it's not that. Role-playing games, Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, I see. So I played Dungeons and Dragons before. It was cool. Yeah, people always then, say that. But what what that means is it actually got cool. Uh, well, yeah. Well, only after there was a huge controversy in the eighties where you weren't had to as a Christian, you had to kind of play on the quiet, uh, and then right. it became really cool. And then after it stopped being cool, I'll still be playing it. Okay. Also, walking in the Peak District or the Yorkshire Dales, yeah. John. It's great to have you on. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Hello. Hello, Ben, as well, and hello, listener. It's uh, great to be here. Terry Wogan Sing, joke there. Yeah. For, the, yeah. for, the older, yeah. for the older people in the audience, there was a Terry Wogan joke there. No. So. I won't do my Terry Wogan impression. That's, uh, <laughs> that's most of my funny material gone now. But So what, what were you wanting to ask me? Okay, thanks for that. Let's <laughs> get this back on track. Yeah. Well, we, we quite often use a lot of, of jargon, and, and when people have come on and they'll have uh, titles that some people will understand and some people necessarily don't, and you started your role as Mission Development Advisor, which is still what you do in 2019. Just give us some flavor of what that meant then, meant now, and, and what you do with your time. Yeah, so the Mission Development Advisor was part of a team um, called the Parish Support Team which is what it was when I joined it. It's morphed a bit now into a resourcing mission and ministry. But the role's pretty much the same. And the role is to particularly to um, support, encourage the rejuvenated strand of the diocesan strategy, which is what um, Development Day will have been about this year. And the idea of that is to grow the church younger. So um, the brilliant Mike North and Sarah Beardsmore and the CP guys, they look after the... Um, youth, children, families. But my uh, role is more about congregational age. So how long has a church been established? So it's to try and encourage the starting of new Christian communities in the diocese. Um, and that's fundamentally my role. It's it's broadened out a little bit into thinking about revitalization through church planting and um, grafting. But it's, it's I suppose, the, the envelope is really uh, starting new things. So as I travel around the diocese, we come across quite a large number of congregations that have an ageing demographic. 
So is the point to try and change the demographic in an existing congregation, or is it to try and... Do you feel that younger people will be pl- better off in a plant than joining an existing aged congregation? I think it's a bit of both. So I think that, you know, um, Jesus talks about <clears throat> wineskins and not putting new wine into old wineskins. Um, so I think there's something about new things for new people. A lot of the research says that the more things there are for people to go to, the more people will go. But also what you find is that um, churches which start new things are also revitalized and refreshed in themselves. So you get a bit of um, two-way encouragement because it's the same Holy Spirit that's <laughs> that's doing that's doing both, isn't it? So it's yeah. the Holy Spirit that's growing, growing the new thing. And, and then people get fired up by the Holy Spirit um, and the old thing also develops as well. So are both, I think. One thing you've been helpful with, John, from a comms perspective has been new congregations. That's been a big part of your role and celebrating them, like Ali Middleton and Rotherham Minster, for example, Barbara Cushing and Anston. Um, you've got Chris Herbert as well and Berg Wallace. Uh, just tell me a bit about your role with new congregations and, and what constitutes a new congregation. Thank you, Ben. So I think my role is, is one of encouragement. I think it's, I think really the first step is knowing that it's a thing. You know, we've, we've grown up in a, a church, most of us grew, have been around the church a while, grown up Sunday morning, half past 10, parish communion. And I think the idea that church isn't just that, but it can be other things. So the Fresh Expression movement got going probably 20 years ago. So new congregations are kind of a, an offshoot of that in a way. But we wanted to define a new congregation so that we could be transparent about how many we'd got. We've got a target of 50 across the diocese. We want to be transparent about about counting them. So what we say is it's a place where you can express your discipleship. So all our new congregations are heading towards six things. They don't necessarily start with these six things, but there are six things that they're heading towards. The first is some sort of worship so that people can engage with God um, together. The second is fellowship, so people can share together, they can read the Bible, pray together. All that stuff that Paul talks about, bearing one another's burdens and um, bearing with each other and all that sort of stuff, learning to forgive, learning to say you're sorry, they can do all that. The third thing is some sort of outreach, so they can fulfill their part of the Great Commission, making disciples of all nations. The fourth thing would be um, raising up leaders, because these things need to be sustainable and we need to raise up leaders. Fifth thing would be reaching new people. So we're not just recycling the people that already come, but we're looking for new people. And the last, because we're Anglican, is access to the sacrament so that the people would um, be able to go to that new congregation and get communion or baptism without going somewhere else. So those six things are what we're heading to. And if people say, yeah, that's where we're heading to, uh, even if it's not there at the start, we count that as a new congregation. Do you think part of the attraction of those new congregations is that is that it isn't the stereotypical half ten in the morning on a Sunday, that it can fit into the sort of modern day working patterns more? Yeah, I think I think I think so. I think um, also it start tend they tend to start either with a worship experience or with a community experience. So, for example at the Minster with um, the Ali, what Al is doing, they start off with um, the social supermarket and gathering around that. And then eventually out of that came a worshipping 
experience. Um, some places start with a worshiping experience and then they develop fellowship and outreach. So I think the, the flexibility of new congregations is the key, is the key thing. And I think in our society, community is is something that we're missing out on a lot of the time, um, and but also something that people value. And so it, it's trying to create new community for people to join. And you said that, that you want uh, 15 new congregations. What sort of time span are you putting that? Are you putting that within some sort of context or? Well, originally the, with the strategy sort of launched late 2018, wanted that by 2025. Unfortunately, pandemic intervened. Yes, something that did happen. Yeah. So we've got about 18 running at the moment. So I would think, I would think, you know, over the next three, four, five years, we could probably get there. Certainly by 2030, I would have hoped to get there. Mm. It's one, it's less than one per mission area. Yeah. We've got yeah. 57, I think 57 mission areas. So it's less than one per mission area. So, and we're talking about things that churches can do you know it's a it's a coffee morning with um stay on for a bit of worship or it's a messy church or it's a you know friday night youth group that has a bit of worship attached to it that sort of thing they're not we're not talking about planting churches with buildings and vicars and pcc's and all of that stuff so these are not not they're not high intensity and they're not high resource they're just christian gatherings yeah, and I know we've spoken before as we've visited churches together and, and other stuff that we've spoken about that you're very keen on allowing people to have a pathway, you know, a, a, a series of steps to get somewhere. That's part of your job, isn't it, to help people? You're, you're at one place and have you set up stuff before it? Yeah, that's it? right. So the missional pathway idea is to say that people might take more than one step to come to faith in Christ. So at the moment, you know, if you have a church where, for example, there's a Sunday at 10.30, if people living around there want to find out about Jesus, they're, they're, they have to go along our past time on a Sunday morning to find out. <laughs> when some of them have got their kids playing football. Yeah, or, or it's kind of a potentially yeah. a difficult experience, you know, to go into a building that you don't know, people you don't know, and you're not sure whether you believe it. So what we want to say with missional pathways is that actually there are several steps coming to faith. So there's getting to know Christians. There's a, there's a, a I don't know what you call it, a survey called Talking Jesus that was done in 2015 and repeated in 2022 that says that a third of people um, want a conversation about Jesus in this country. And that they, that the people that they go to to ask about are their friends. And so what are we doing to have a situation where people who aren't connected to the church can meet with Christian friends? Are we doing social events so that they can come to that, get to know us as people, get to see that we're relatively normal? <laughs> um, and, you know, are we running an inquiries course? Are we are we doing something where people like Alpha or Christianity Explored start or Pilgrim or something like that, where people can explore that faith and then when they've come to faith are we discipling them are we helping them to live out that christian faith and their baptismal call through praying together and reading the bible together so it's many steps and the missional pathway is just identifying what that looks like for us in our church we had the visit of the archbishop of york stephen cottrell in june you were here for that meeting when he came to church house did yeah. you feel 
that was quite affirming for the work that you do here. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's interesting that, that uh, Stephen Cottrell has some of the same influences as I do. Some of the people that have been important in his thinking around mission are the same people that have been important in mine. So I do think um, that, yeah, he, he he's very keen on mission. He's very keen on evangelism. He's very keen on community. Very keen on on the church being more than a service at half ten on a Sunday morning, and um, yeah, so it, it was affirming, I think. So if I was, I'm listening to this podcast as a straight uh, straight up and down Church of England that thinks half past ten, uh, we have to have communion every Sunday and so on and so forth. But I I, I really felt a stirring within me to think actually, I do know that there are people in my community, in my village, or my town that would like to know more about Jesus, but they're not gonna come at half past 10 minutes, and exactly as you said. What, what, where would you point them to? What sort of reading would you get them to do? Or what would you start to say to them? How is that gonna be explored in your community? Yeah, I think, to be honest, drop me an email. I think some of these ideas are, are best teased out in conversation. I honestly do. I think, yeah, there's tons of books about church planting and starting things, but it's very difficult. It's a spirit-led thing. Yeah. So it's the Holy Spirit is prompting somebody. Yeah. And, you know, the idea of that then is that they would kind of work that out, talk it through, think it through. That's easier done, with, I think, with a person than a, than a book. Yeah. I mean, there may be people who've read a book and gone and planted a church. <laughs> I, I met them. But my experience is that people talk it through. So so drop me a line, john.marsh at sheffield.anglican.org. Great. And I'll come and have a cup of coffee with you. Fantastic. And you've always said starting new things isn't a new thing. Yes, Ben. Well done. That was a good, good pick oh, he's up on, there. He's so on brand in these moments. He's, he's, he's amazing. He comes out. He, he does. I don't know <laughs> he reads up beforehand or what, but he's just... Moments like that. I was just feeling renewed, Paul. That's oh, hello. Uh, he's comms, isn't he? He's comms, though. That's great, his though, thing. Isn't it? That's great. Yes, Ben. So, starting new things isn't a new thing. <laughs> um, well, it just, it just, we made a little video about this, which you can find on the Darson website. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was just this thought that at some point there wasn't a church in a particular place, now there was one. So we we started off at Thorpe Salvin, which we've got a Norman Arch or something, and um, so it's obviously a thousand going on for a thousand years old. Yeah. And but at some point, you know, it wasn't it wasn't there that the good people of Thorpe Salvin didn't have a church, and somebody built one. So there was a point when that church, albeit to us nearly a thousand years old, was new to somebody, and. You know, you can say that about Rotherham Minster, 1400s, but in 1300s they didn't have one. That sort of idea. So I think I think um, the church, had it not started new things, would still be in Jerusalem, wouldn't it? There'd be like one building in Jerusalem where people were worshipping. <laughs> but, but there aren't. So, so clearly the church has started new things throughout, throughout its history. Um, and why would we not want to join in with that, would be my question. It's worth remembering that, I think, because it can be always tempting, can't it, if congregation numbers are low across the country or declining across the country, to think there was once a golden age 
where they were always full. But as you've said, there were times when there weren't even churches there in the first place. Yeah, and I, I think I don't... The more I read, so I'm doing some study at the moment about church planting, the more I read, the more I think I'm coming to the conclusion that there wasn't really a golden age. Um, but I think that there, clearly there was church going was more of a thing, but why people went, you know, did they go because they had to, to keep their job at the factory? Did they have to, to keep their job on the land with the Lord of the Manor? We, we're not sure. It's difficult to tell because by and large, ordinary people 700 years ago didn't keep diaries because <laughs> they couldn't read and write. So we don't really know what they were thinking. But the idea that um, there has a, has been this golden age of Christianity, there's been a, there's been a golden age of Christian influence of Christendom of political influence, but whether there's been a, a golden age of spiritual um, uh, heat and excitement and temperature, I, I, I'm not I'm not sure. N not certainly not in the population as a at large. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I might have mentioned you this story before. My, my my grandmother, my nana, was was part of one of the Welsh revivals in a mining town in South Wales. And uh, she told me the story. And she'd never spoken to me about Christianity until the day I was baptised in my 20s. And I was full immersion baptism in my 20s. And she came to that and she sat me down afterwards and said, started to tell me the story of her experiences during the revivals. And she, I remember her clearly telling me that she could hear the miners coming up the pithead. Uh, uh, on the lift coming up to the pithead baths and she said before the revival started they would come out of the the pithead and into the pub and once the revival started they walked straight past the pub into the church and that was a move of the holy spirit mm. in certain welsh areas that yeah. happened and it was a very short period of time but she can remember that and she hung on to that all her life of hearing the miners singing hymns as they came up the lift and into the chapels and we that's gone in a lot of those areas and they but there are still remnants of that it's a it's an interesting time when you start looking back at history of those moments when there's been moves of the spirit which have changed the landscape of british christianity and christianity across the world and i wonder how we think about that going forward as to what how will that re revitalize what we do now yeah i think it's really interesting isn't it because i was i suppose i was caught up in what often is being called the third wave so in the 80s, John Wimber, yeah. Vineyard and yeah. all of that. And I think um, that's that has had a lasting effect. I wouldn't but, be here if it wasn't for yeah, that. Yeah, and, and I probably yeah. wouldn't either. But I think it, it's not necessarily had a had a had an effect on a huge number of people mm. in, in relation to the population size. No, that's and I think as well, you know... I think the issue is discipleship, if I'm really honest. So when I was a child and a, and a teenager, I went to a church that was quite lively. I had a great, a great vicar and, uh, and, he, and his wife and the kids at the vicarage. And there were 120 people every week. It was packed out. It was great. And um, I got confirmed and all of that. Went to youth group. And then when I was um, lower six, I think, we went to see a Christian band that were over from America that our chemistry teacher had brought in. Christian teachers in Sheffield had, had brought this band over and they played gigs in, for six forms during the week and then we went down to what was then the Poly um, on the Friday night Sheffield Hallam University now and um, they did this gig and um, 
uh, they did like a, a call at the end, call to the front at the end. And I, I, in my head, I was thinking, well, I go to church every week. I don't need to go down. But somehow my legs disagreed and I was kind of halfway down the front before I realized. Mm. And they prayed for me to receive the Holy Spirit. And I, I hadn't been drunk at that point in my life. But subsequent experience tells me that that's what it felt like. I felt drunk, euphoric. That was a Friday night. Felt the same on the Saturday. Sunday morning, went to church, told the vicar uh, about this experience. And the uh, lovely man that he was had no idea what to do with it. And um, played it down. And I, I actually stopped, I dropped out of church for about a year because of that I can reconcile these two things. And I think... You know, it's really important that we seek God through the Holy Spirit, but it's also important that we then keep that alive through meeting with other people, through reading the scriptures, through praying. You know, and I think that that I look at that church now, it's not got 120 people in it every week, and it's not really got many new people in it. And I think what what was there was the 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 vicar and his wife and their family were attractive people kind enthusiastic but there's no discipleship so after they left gradually ebbed away what do you think you needed to hear about moment john because that does sound like a real pivotal moment of your life and perhaps was discouraging that it wasn't met with the the response you were hoping for yeah i don't know i think i mean if it, i think i think now if i was a vicar of a church somebody came and said tell me that story i'd want to I'd want to encourage them. I'd want to ask them about it, what they felt about it. I'd want to say to them, um, "Look, you need to, you need to meet with other people who've had that kind of experience. You need to uh, read the Bible. You need to pray. You need to pursue God. You need to pursue God for it. I mean, that's that's why we're here, isn't it? That, the whole point of us being here is that we pursue a relationship with God, and and when you've had that experience, then then you found those flames, I guess. Paul says to Timothy, doesn't he, that you should stir up the gift that's within you. I think that's what he's talking about. When did you, you mentioned then you sort of dropped out of church for a year. When did you go back? What drew you back and what was the journey? So I went back because the vicar came around about a year later and said, we've missed you. <laughs> <laughs> And I went, so will you come back? So I went, and and inevitably there was a young lady there who I quite like the look of. Uh, we didn't get anywhere, but um, yeah. So the, I went back into a situation, and I I liked the the camaraderie of it and stuff. I but I didn't. I was suppose suppose it wasn't until university, um, a few months after that, that I. I actually engaged with anybody who encouraged me to read the Bible. So I did a, I did a did a psychology degree, but in the first year you were allowed to do subsidiary subjects. In fact, you had to do. And I'd, I'd uh, most people who did psychology, bachelor of science, did biology or chemistry, and I was rubbish at both. My A level results would tell you that, and I just couldn't face any more chemistry. I didn't understand what was going on, and it turned out you could do biblical studies. Oh, well. And I thought, oh, okay, I'll do that. So I signed up for this biblical studies course. And um, there are a lot of Christians in the, uh, in the, on the course. 
And I, I remember going to one lecture, I can still remember it to this day. And the guy was talking about Saul. And he's banging about Saul. And I thought, oh, I, I, know, I know what's going to happen here. He's going to become Paul in a bit. Mind you, I don't remember him being a king. I don't remember that bit. And my Bible knowledge <laughs> was such <laughs> that I didn't know the Old Testament from the New. Right. Um, and I was challenged there and then, kind of, it, during that course, by some older, some mature Christians. There's a lady um, called Rowena from Hong Kong who was a mature Christian, and she said, she, she, in a lovely, blunt way, she said, you don't really know the Bible, do you? You ought to read it. <laughs> <laughs> so... So, um, so I think it was. I think it was that experience at university of hanging around with Christians and and reading the Bible. I just I bought these daily notes. There was daily bread and daily notes. Scripture yeah. union. Daily bread yeah. was for ordinary people, and daily notes was for leaders. And yeah. I fancied myself as a leader, so I got daily notes. <laughs> and I read. <laughs> nothing's changed. <laughs> and I read. I read um, daily notes, and what you had a passage and a, a commentary. And then at the bottom, it gave you two chapters of Old Testament, one, one chapter new. And through the year, you would read the whole Bible. So I did that. I did that twice. Did it for two years running. And that really helped. And then I joined a church after university where, where this Holy Spirit experience that I'd had when I was 17 uh, was understood and explained to me and, and kind of, you know, validated. And there were other people there who had that. So I think it was a slow process going by, but it, I would say reading the Bible, studying the Bible, and then meeting people who could say that was a valid experience that you had, I think, and being in a community. They had a home group that I joined. What drew you then to your teaching background? I know that we've been fortunate in what was the old comms office. You've occasionally come up and given us some sort of how-to science lessons, something on buoyancy, and different weights of ships and smaller objects. Yeah, you were um, listening carefully, Ben. I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> there was there was something about something buoyancy. about buoyancy. Yeah, it all makes sense. Most of the kids it. I talk have the same response. <laughs> right, yeah, <laughs> Mr. March taught Mr. March taught us once about buoyancy. About buoyancy. Yeah, it was interesting. Yeah. I can't remember. So the question was, why did I get into teaching? The, the short answer is, uh, I was waiting to become a vicar. So I'd felt a real call on my life when I was about sixteen, and everybody said. Oh, you'd make a great vicar, and I, I, I think looking back, they just thought I was a bit wet, and <laughs> and that's the sort of thing that wet people did. So, or that I, 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 to all our vicar friends out there, <laughs> we obviously don't. That is not that's not on brand. <laughs> and um, no, I'm stuck about the people's perception from outside. I know that vicars are strong and brave as well, but um, oh, and I I like to think in my better moments that they thought I might be kind. Yeah. Anyway, this idea that I'd become a vicar was quite strongly embedded in me. And I went through the whole process of selection in 1992. And the person who prepared me for the, for the selection panel said, what will you do if you don't get through? And I said, oh, I was married to a teacher by that time and I got some friends who were teachers. And I was like, oh, I'll, I'll go into teaching. So I didn't get through. So I went into teaching. And um, I didn't fancy secondary school. And, and also I didn't have, because you had to have a degree then that was really relevant to the subject you would teach at secondary. And psychology just didn't fit. But it, because it was a general science degree, it was acceptable for a primary PGCE. 
So I ended up going into primary school teaching while I was waiting to be a vicar. And it turned out to be quite, quite, quite a long, long wait. wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite a long wait. Because um, I went into teaching in 1990. I qualified in 93, got my first job in 94 and got ordained in 2014. It was like a 20-year wait, really, to get to get ordained. So, And then I didn't really become a vicar in that sense. So, yeah, uh, teaching was like the the thing I did while I was waiting to do the thing I wanted to do, I suppose. So much of the Bible, though, is about waiting and patience. And even if that can take years, it's sort of just hanging on to that hope at the end. So what was that moment like when you did finally get ordained? Yeah, I suppose it, it was uh, it was good. It was exciting. It's, it's interesting. I think um, it was a bit it was a bit odd because I think I'd been coming to the conclusion that maybe I didn't want to be a vicar of a parish. Um, started to starting to kind of become part of what I was thinking. So th- I'd I'd been turned down the second time confession time. Yeah, I'd been turned down the second time for my for my um, selection panel, and the bishop, the then bishop of Sheffield, overturned that um, and sent me to get trained anyway. Something that bishops can do took his neck out for me and um when i went to get to get ordained after three years of training um everybody was happy that i should do it it was fine there wasn't a problem but i you had a one-to-one conversation with the bishop so i went to see the bishop of sheffield then bishop of sheffield and said he said how you know are you getting ordained and how are you feeling about it and all that and i said well do you know i'm not sure that i i'm not sure that i want to be a typical parish vicar and his face dropped because <laughs> he thought, he thought, he stuck his neck out to get me all day. <laughs> 20, for 20 years. 20 years waiting. Paid for me to get to get trained for three years. And here I am stood in his study on the eve of my ordination saying, I'm not sure I want to be a vicar of a parish. Um, so, so it was a weird thing. I think the second time, the first time I went, I wanted to be a vicar. And the route to being a vicar was ordination. The second time was I felt God wanted me to get ordained. I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it. Mm. So it was a bit odd, really, in some ways. So you went through that process with some other people that you've mentioned on your bio that I've got in yeah, front of yeah. you. So there are people out there in ministry out now that we would know yeah. that are at the same time as you. Who was that in particular? So um, Karen Colley, who works in Church House, um, started at the same time as I did. And... Um, was incredibly well organized person. Karen. Incredibly what? Well organized. Oh, well organized. Really I well organized. Said, I said the opposite. I've had a meeting with Karen well, today. She was very organized. Very well organized. So, so quite early on, I sat next to her so I could borrow a pen off her and stuff <laughs> like that. And uh, and um, she was great. And then um, Julie Bacon, who's one of our AATs, yeah. uh, she and I went through the whole three years. I think Karen did too because I think she was already a lay reader. So she had to do two. The, Jules and I went through all three together. And then uh, Phil Barringer, who's the oversight minister Rivers. for the Rivers team. Rivers. So, uh, yeah, so the four of us at the moment in the diocese who all started at the same time at what was then YMC and is now St. Hild. Um, and only a couple of years ago, our principal, who was principal of the Theological College, uh, Christine Gore, so when I started at Church House, Christine was was here, uh, 
leading the St. Peter's College. Yeah. Um, so that was quite a, 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 you know, an interesting thing that we were sort of reunited uh, in different circumstances. Yeah, that's fascinating stuff. I think there's a lot more we could talk about, but I'm looking at time. So it's fascinating. And I think we there will be times, I think, when we dip back into some people's stories as we've got, because there's stuff around mission, I think, next year we particularly want to start looking at. And we I think we'll have a series around mission areas and mission around things. So we'd love to have you back around that as we look forward to that. But as we come to our end, there are always a few questions okay, that we yeah, ask, John. Yeah. Now, I mentioned earlier on about uh, the football team. There's a particular Sheffield team that you support, and uh, which way do we fall here? Uh, Wednesday. Wednesday. Yeah. Some people just turned off now. The, <laughs> yeah, the so that's why we did it late. Late, because <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, yeah. the anticipation. Yeah, and uh, that's my dad's fault. I think football supporting is genetic. You get it. You usually get it off your dad. Um, and I was taken to Hillsborough when I was, not saying against my will, but I was taken to Hillsborough when <laughs> I was about, taken to Hillsborough. About, about five years old. And I was reflecting on this the other day when I was watching them get hammered again, that there have been three constants in my life that started my childhood. One of them was watching Wednesday. One of them was playing role-playing games. And the other one was going to church. Mm. And I'm 58 this time. Mm. And since certainly for over, well, going, going on for 50 years, those three things have been constants in my life. Yeah. And you can't, what can you do? You have you a love-hate relationship with all of them. I yeah I to some extent to some extent which gives you the most grief <laughs> which one's giving me the most grief Wednesday without a doubt without a doubt yeah yeah so Sheffield Wednesday my my team for better or worse and just briefly you do have a good story from last year involving your son and a cat at Hillsborough yeah so my son's qualified as a vet and we went to an evening game and um, I can't remember the who we were playing now I've got a terrible memory for things like that. But we were, we'd gone to the game and it was getting quite late on, maybe the last 10 minutes. And suddenly, uh, out of nowhere, this cat appears on the pitch and starts running across the pitch, but in, a, in an odd way. And um, my son, like I say, he's a vet, turned to me and said, that, that cat, there's something wrong with that cat. It's not, it's not well. It's, it's, it's got more goals than the strikers. Yeah, that's right. It's not well. So I said, oh, okay. Um, so I turned round to talk to the guy behind me about something. And when I turned back, my son had gone. He, he'd gone and I see him down at the front of the at the, at the pitch side um, talking to the steward. By which time, one of the players had, had rescued this cat. And it was the day or two after that a cat had been badly treated by a professional footballer that was in the news. So it was a day or two after, well, yes. no names, but yes. we didn't know who we were talking yep. about. Yep. A couple of days, so this was a couple of days later. Uh, and so this player carried it off the pitch and um, gave it to one of the training staff and handed it on to my son who carried it, who disappeared with the steward. Anyway, I stayed in my seat, game finished. The crowds disappeared. I was waiting for him to come back and he didn't reappear. So I went and found the steward and said, oh, yeah, I've lost, don't know my son is. So he said, oh, he, yeah, we'll go and find him. So um, I rang him got some singing, I rang him and I said, where are you? He said, oh, I'm still looking after the cat. I'll meet you back at the car. So 10 minute walk back to the car, got to the car, no sign of him. So I rang him again. I'm still at the ground. Can he come and pick me up? So I drove back down to the ground, parked in the car park. He said, oh, I got to the car park, phoned him again. I'm in the car park. He said, I'll be out in five minutes. So I sat in the car. By which time the, the lights are going off in the ground and it's all, you know, it's like 
quarter to 11 or something. And um, he, he comes out carrying the cat. So he gets in the car and I said, oh, so like we're dealing with it, are we? <laughs> he was like, yeah, we are. I said, okay. Well, what we're going to do? He said, we're going to go to the all-night vets at, um, Meadow, near Meadow Hall. So we set off towards Meadow Hall. And then he says, oh, hang on. My, he's now wife, but then girlfriend, and works at a vet that are doing all night. So he rang her and got out of bed and said, we're coming around to your vets. Have you got the keys? So we met up in Chesterfield <laughs> at this vet. So I drove all the way to Chesterfield with my son cradling this really badly injured can. He, th he thought it had been hit by a car. We probably have been hit by a car. We're not sure. Um, and at one point, going up, um, uh, I think going up Chesterfield Road, he said, uh, he stopped breathing. I said, what do we do? Do I go faster? He was like, no. And then he said, you haven't got any blue lights, have you? You're not an ambulance. You can't you can't break the speed loop for a cat. So I was like, okay. And then he went, oh, no, it's all right. It's breathing again. So we got it. Got a long story short. We got it to the vet's. They treated it. They cats off microchips. They found the owner to be missing for nine months. Wow. Um, they they it became a bit of a thing on the news. He was on he was on Look North. Um, there's a crowdfund to uh, to raise the money to to repair the cat, the broken vertebra. And so it was operated on and and what have you. And then we were invited as guests of the club to the next home game. Me and Sam we sat in the director's box, had a lovely meal, um, got. Beaten by Rotherham 2-0. Um, but that's the story of the cat. Friends of the Diocese, Rotherham United, of course. As of well. course, yes, also in the um, Diocese. I remember, that, I remember that going viral locally and then yeah. you came into the office and yeah. mentioned it was your son that did yeah. it. I thought it was yeah. incredible. You can see, if you Google uh, Hillsborough cat or something like that, you'll still, you can still see a picture of him carrying his cat. It's like a good name for a band, actually, the Hillsborough Cats. The Hillsborough Cats. Yeah. You're also a big music fan and LJ... Um, uh, my yeah. boss, who's been on the podcast, I said you're one of the coolest members of staff. I think this goes back to um, conference last yeah. year. Yeah, you had this certain vibe you were trying to get across. So I was a bit. So we we stayed up to you know have a have a cup of tea late on um, and a glass of lemonade, and um, we uh, I was a bit disappointed there was no dancing because I quite like dancing mm. and. Um, so I was playing some stuff on my phone to try and get a bit, try and drum a bit of support for Boogie, and I wasn't getting anywhere. And I put this song on that um, I really liked called "Smooth" by that Carlos Santana plays guitar on. Yes. And LJ heard it and said, "Oh, I didn't know anybody else knew that song," which I thought was a strange comment because it'd been like you know I don't know it'd been number one, but it'd certainly been up there. Anyway, <laughs> on the back of that, I, I it turned out through through that knowing that song and playing it that I'm the coolest guy in church because you know Santana. Well, because I like that one song that LJ really likes. That's a low bar. It is a very low bar. Yeah. There's, so not what, lot, there's not a lot of competition in church house, though, is there? Well, I don't know. Actually, we do ask about music. There is some, there is some discussion about yeah. it. So, so what's your favourite stuff of the moment there? Or what are you listening to at the moment? On so my, I suppose my favourite band of all time is Rush, Canadian prog rock. So I, I think I'm pretty much a child. Musically, I'm pretty much a child of the 70s and 80s. So. One big hit, Rush. Yeah, but I don't. I'm bothered about that. Okay. Rush, Marillion, Pink Floyd. I like 
some heavy rock, so rainbow, um, bit Which of deep Richie, purple. Gosh, John. Uh, how have you got a reputation rock? for being the coolest Anything, person? Yeah, but I also like, I like dance music to dance to. So again, I'm a bit of a child of the 80s. So um, met one of my heroes, actually, um, Reverend Richard Cole. Oh, yes, oh, from, yeah. So keyboard from Communards. Communards, yeah. So the yeah. Communards and that kind of music, I love to dance to. And he came and gave a lecture at college while I was there. Mm. And uh, we got talking about music. Yeah, so musically, quite a, quite a wide range of taste, but some music I like to listen to to listen for it, and other music I like to listen to to dance to it. And last one, are we going, or are you going to ask a question? No, right? after you, Paul. No, no, it's books. I insist. <laughs> books. <laughs> yeah, so you're, a, you're obviously a reader. Yeah. Uh, what's on, what's, what are you reading at the moment? Both light and frothy and deep theological tones. So I've just, I like sci-fi and fantasy fiction. I suppose that's the RPG thing. I'm just finishing again, and I tend to book, read books over and over and over, so I don't read a book once. I, if I read a book once and don't go back to it, it's because I don't like it, but some books I read over and over and over, so I'm just finishing um, Children, Ring World's Children, Larry Niven, The Ring World Cycle, um, which is sci-fi, um, and at the moment I'm writing an essay on John Wesley as a missional leader, so I'm plowing through any number of Wesley, Wesley biographies um, but yeah, books on church planting and that sort of So thing. we're both waiting for the second June film to come out, is that right? Yeah, although I haven't seen the first one yet. What? I've read I read the first four books. Yeah, yeah. I watched the original film. No, for, for original film, don't watch, but yeah. you've watched it because you're, you're almost as old as me. But yeah. the second film, uh, the new film, there's nobody in our house who's keen on it. So I... What? Yeah, I know. I might go... We, we're currently watching... Um, uh, what's it called? The Ring, another uh, Ring. Uh, Rings of Power? Yeah, we watched that. And then there's a new, The Wheel of Time. So it's currently on series two, Wheel of Time. Okay. At the end of Wheel of Time, I might be able to get my son to watch Dune. Yeah, it needs a big screen. I thought it was a really good film, actually. I th for a very complicated book, I think he did a very good job. Yeah. I was going to ask a hypothetical, and it's very much as a hypothetical you realise when I ask it you. It's something I want to ask Bishop Pete as well. This is football related, but I'll have to swap the teams around. Would you accept Sheffield Wednesday winning the Premier League if it meant Sheffield United in the same season won the Champions League? That's a really good question. What? That's complicated. So right. that so hypotheticals carrying a lot of weight there, isn't it? It's, bare, yes. it's like quite a high, yeah. bearing a lot of weight there, the word hypothetical, <laughs> given the clubs. Yeah. And I can't imagine in a few weeks' time when this goes out, they'll be any better off. Um, I'm going to say yes, because I want to appear kind. Oh, nice. That's that's very diplomatic. Yeah. I'm sure Phil Batchford at Rotherham Minster, who's a, a blade, as I understand, will be very happy to hear that. Yeah, but I don't really. I mean, you know. Well, we have had we have had uh, discussions around Liverpool Everton. There are people within the diocese who have quite strong views on that as well. So I think we should probably. And yet, Graham Sandersfield's very diplomatic. He's a Sunderland fan, and if they've done well and Newcastle haven't, he sort of. But Graham yeah. is like that. I mean, Graham, yeah. that's he doesn't I'll, twist the knife. No, he doesn't twist the no, knife. He's no, he's much too nice for his own good. No. Yeah. Um, no, he's very honest about that. Right. Yeah. But I think that as you, you're defined as a football fan as much by who you don't like as who you support. That's sadly, yeah. sadly, that's the case. Yeah, there's a complete lack of Man United fans on this podcast so far, and long may that continue yeah. to be fair. 
I don't know if there are any Man United fans well, in Church House. Well, oh, there's none in Man in Manchester anyway, that's for sure. Anyway, um, so... <laughs> on that um, no, on that, on that high <laughs> note. <laughs> I think it's time we wrapped up there, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. John, thanks so much for your time. It's been great to speak to you. It's always an engaging conversation and uh, I'm sure we will revisit some of this stuff over the next period of time. So thanks so much for that. Uh, thanks for having me. It's been great. As ever, we mention uh, the email address, uh, wordsofgrace at sheffield.anglican.org. And please do get in touch with, with comments. And uh, if there's a Man United fan out there that does want to speak to us, then uh, I'll pass that email on to Ben. And I'll uh, forward it on to uh, the spam folder, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I won't. No, you that won't. was me. No. Great. Anyway, thanks so much, John. And uh, great to see you, Ben. You too, Paul. See you next time. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye.